You may be seated. Are you thankful for our music uh, ministry and all that they do to lead us towards the throne of God? And we're just so excited about that. If you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter number three, I am so excited to preach to you today because of all that we're going to find out in Hebrews chapter number three. It is a challenge sometimes to preach through Hebrews. It is not a simple book, but it is rich. There is so much here And I want you to know that it can absolutely change your life. Have you ever felt like you missed out on an opportunity? Anybody ever been there? Maybe it was an opportunity to uh, get a job that you thought maybe you should have gotten and you didn't, or maybe you didn't pursue something that you should have in terms of a job. Maybe it was uh, a relationship that, you know, you should have invested in and it didn't work out or or a friendship that, that, man, if you only had a few years, maybe you didn't know someone was going to leave and then they left. And you're like, man, I wish I would have spent more time with them. Uh, may, maybe it was a business opportunity. Maybe it was like a, a purchasing opportunity. You had the chance to buy something. Who, who would go back and if you could go back in a time machine and get a few baseball cards that now would be worth something, right? Or you had that mom that threw away your, I had a Mickey Mantle rookie card and my mom threw it away or whatever. I hear about that kind of thing all the time. I've heard, I've heard about situations where people had the opportunity to invest in a company. Like, for instance, uh, the guy who founded Atari. Does anybody remember Atari? The little joysticks and the, yeah, that was fun. Um, the guy who founded that had a guy named Nolan Bushnell reportedly had the opportunity to invest $50,000 in seed money for an upcoming burgeoning company you may have heard of, if this $50,000 would have made him a third owner of this little company called Apple. Have you ever heard of Apple? Apple Computers, which today is valued at over $2 trillion. Could you imagine? Who thought he missed out? Yeah, anybody have any Atari stuff now? Okay, not, not so much, right? Talk about missing an opportunity. None of us want to miss out on an opportunity. In fact, they call it Anybody ever heard of FOMO, fear of missing out? That's something people talk about. I feel like I've got an opportunity for you guys, and I'm not a salesman today. That's not really what I'm, I'm not trying to pitch a sale here. Uh, Last week, we talked about, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to about verse uh, 6, this idea that Jesus Christ and of course, this is the theme of our series as we go through Hebrews. Jesus is greater. Who agrees with me that Jesus is greater? And what we, what we saw and what I hope you came away with, and if it's your first time here, I'm going to catch you up with where we're at. Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior in every way. What we talked about last week, because the text talked about it, is that Jesus is superior at transformation. That not only can Jesus save us, Okay, from our sin, from the effects of our sin, from what it means to be lost and without Christ, without hope, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. You understand that. Hell is real. Eternal conscious torment. Did I just ruin your day? That's a real thing. Heaven is real. And he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay, that's really good. But not only does God want to use Jesus Christ to to save us, Jesus wants to transform us. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people. There was a house that Moses built. That's what we talked about last week. Moses in the Old Testament had a house. It was the people of God and all the law of God and the services of God and the people of God. There was literally the tabernacle of God where the sacrificial system would happen and once a year a priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood of a spotless lamb on the mercy seat and he's the only one that could go in once a year because that was a, man, that was a place where the manifest presence of God was and to go and stand before God to do that unrighteously or unholy you would, you would literally die and so they literally, that's what would happen and so there was this house, a place where God built and what we learned last week is that Jesus also builds a house. And there's this amazing verse. Look at verse number, um, chapter 3, verse number 6. I love this. 
but Christ is the son over his own house, whose house are we. We're his house. He comes to live inside of us. Anybody ever have a hard time changing yourself? You know how I know you do? One word, scale. You guys have a scale at your house? Some of you are like, no, I gave up on that years ago, right? It's hard to change. Who here agrees it's hard to change? God can do it in us. He comes and lives inside of us and changes us from the inside out. Not only does God want to give us the opportunity to have our sins forgiven and be made right with him, to spend eternity with him forever, he also wants to grow us into what he wants us to be. He wants us to have an abundant, transformed life. I want you walking away from last week's message and this week's message knowing this, that to be saved, you don't have to clean up to get saved. Salvation is what begins the cleaning up process. God gives you his righteousness and he takes away your sin. I'm excited about that. But God loves you so much that he doesn't want to leave you like you are. He wants you to grow. He wants you to change. He wants you to be transformed. And, and I want you feeling this, okay? I want you to feel this this morning. That's the best life you could ever have. Amen. To have a life that is full of the Holy Spirit, full of Jesus, full of all that God wants for you. That's what God wants for you. Don't be content just to be saved and attend church. God wants so much more for you than that. He wants to grow you into who he wants to be, and then he wants to not dismiss you, but send you out to make a difference in the lives of people. That's what God's called us to do. This doesn't mean that in this life, God's plan is for everyone to have prosperity. I am not pitching you material prosperity. In fact, sometimes having a victorious Christian life means that you miss out on the things that won't satisfy you anyway. Sometimes, sometimes it takes sacrifice. In fact, Jesus says, if any man want to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But God does want us to fully realize what it means to have a victorious, mature, abundant spiritual life and relationship with him. Jesus is incredible at transformation. But there's something that will keep us from being transformed. There is something that will keep us from this abundant, victorious Christian life. Something that will keep us from the promised land, as it will. And that is what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, warns us about in today's text. This week, we're going to study the rest of the chapter. Last week, we learned that Jesus is great at transformation because he showed us how he was compared to Moses. The law could not transform us. The law pointed out where we were wrong. Pointed out, anybody try to keep the rules and realize just because I have rules doesn't mean I keep them? right? Jesus shows up and he transforms us from the inside out. And we're going to study the rest of the chapter and find out about what can keep us from this incredible transformation God wants to make in our lives. I don't want you, and I definitely don't want me, to miss out on all that God has for me. I don't want that. I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about this mature, abundant spiritual life. So because Jesus is greater at transformation, we can partake in the transformed Christian life by faith when we observe and obey three sections that we're going to see here in Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 7. So we're gonna, I'm going to lay this out for you. If you have a bulletin, uh, there's an outline in the middle that will help you walk us through this particular text. Okay, So let's look at Hebrews chapter 3. And in fact, what I'm going to do, because we read Psalm 95, which you're going to find out is going to be important, um, I, I want to read this part, Hebrews chapter 3, and then come back to it. So if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 3, looking, starting in verse number 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. 
Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren. Take heed, brethren. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of, what? Unbelief. In departing from the holy God, from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. God we want to have hearts that are softened towards you. We want to have hearts that are pliable and flexible and open to the transformation that your spirit and your son want to do inside of us. God, I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't have that, that they would be encouraged today while it's called today to not harden their hearts, to not regard sin in their hearts, to repent of that and to turn to you by faith to let you transform us from the inside out. God, may you bless the reading of your word and help me not to get in the way today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to break this up, this passage, into three parts, three sections. The first section is a familiar illustration, a familiar illustration. In verse 7, you see him say, wherefore, and of course, whenever you say wherefore, he's always referring back to, what he's already said. And what he's already said is, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. He has a better, a better house. We've already talked about that a little bit in the introduction. And so because Jesus is better than Moses, and because God wants to come and indwell us, because we're God's house, now he gives us a warning, and he does it by quoting Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. There's a parenthesis in our English version. It says, wherefore, and then he says, do you see what it says here? Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith. I think that's an interesting thing. He says, as the Holy Ghost saith, and then he goes on to quote almost verbatim Psalm 95 at the end part 6 through, you guys saw that? You guys see that that's the same thing? Now that's an interesting thing. The psalm had a human writer, but here Hebrews says, as the Holy Ghost saith, and I just want to take this moment to say, the Bible says about itself that this is God's word, not just the word of mere man. So the Holy Ghost said it in the psalm. Now, it's interesting. The psalms um, were the, the hymn book, the, the song book of the Jewish people, right? And so when he got into this particular section, this book, Hebrews, is written to Jewish people. And as he would have uh, begun to quote this verse, here's what I want you to think. If I, if I were to sing to you, uh, if I were to say to you, quote to you, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the, how many of you guys heard a melody in your head? You heard it? Because you've been in church a long time. If you've been in a conservative uh, church, in the last hundred years in America, that's a great song. And you, when you hear the lyric, you think of the song. That's what they would have done when they were reading this. This would have been a psalm that they would have sung. They would have had this, a lot of them memorized because it would have been something they sung in worship. And it was a psalm that referred back to this really familiar illustration about Moses. We're still talking about Moses. We're still talking about the children of Israel. And he says, wherefore, this little parenthesis gives this illustration. Because God, because Jesus is better, and because he has a better house and we're in his house, I want you to remember, Hebrews says, the author of Hebrews says, and the Holy Ghost says, this little illustration. There was a time where God wanted to give something and do something in the heart of his people. And they missed out on it. Do you get it? The Holy Spirit-inspired lyrics called us to a bad example not to do what they did. Now, to give you this illustration, I want to give us a framework. 
Then I'm going to talk about how the Jews responded and then how God responded. That's what he talks about in these verses. The framework is given by three phrases in this text, okay? This framework is this. First, you see these three little words, out of Egypt. You'll see that in chapter 3. Let's see, verse 16. For some, when they had heard it, did provoke, howbeit not all that came, do you see it? Out of Egypt. Do you see that? That's the first location in these passages that talk about, he's given this illustration. So you remember the story, don't you? The Jews started as a family. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had Judah and all of his, all of his family. One of those was Moses, Mo, or sorry, <laughs> One of them was Joseph. Joseph got sold into slavery. There was a great famine. God used Joseph and all that happened there to get his family to Egypt. That family grew like God said it would to Abraham. That that nation would become like the sand of the seashore, like the stars of the night sky. And they grew and grew and grew. And there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. He put them into bondage in Egypt. Then God sent a guy named Moses, first in a basket that went along the Nile River, and that princess that drew him up out of the water. God did that, by the way. And then God used him and worked in his life to get into the place where then he sent him back to them as a deliverer, telling Pharaoh, let my people go. Ten plagues came. Who guys remember the story? Am I... Do I repeat myself? Okay. They, they, they get taken out of this bondage, and then they go, secondly, into where? Into the wilderness. You'll find that mentioned in verse number 8. Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation. Do you see the phrase there? In the wilderness. If you've read the story told us in Exodus, you know that the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. God sent Moses with them with, and with him the plagues to motivate the Egyptians to let my people go. That's exactly what happened. And God led this people out of Egypt. Once they were out of Egypt, they found themselves in the wilderness. You'll see that location again mentioned in verse 8. The last location you'll see mentioned is in verse 11. You see it? So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my, what does it say? Into my rest. Now take a moment with me as we think about this passage and this illustration to think about who is being addressed. In the first verse of the chapter, back in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, wherefore, who is he addressing? Holy brethren. Do you see that? Our holy brethren, Christians, people who are saved, down in verse number 12, take heed, what does it say? Brethren. It is, my, it is my deduction that he's still talking to saved people. Okay? He's talking to saved people. These are people who have Jesus Christ as their profession, it says in verse 12, Right? He says, or as it says in verse 1, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. These are people who have Jesus Christ as their profession. In verse 12, brethren are mentioned again. These are not just people who are brethren by nationality, but through faith in Jesus Christ. These are the sons and daughters of God the Father and the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. So then you have that third phrase, into my rest. The phrase, into my rest, is a reference to the children of Israel going into the land of Canaan. God delivered Israel out of Egypt in order that they might go into Canaan, into rest. So into rest here is a reference to the land of Canaan, the promised land. Do you guys remember what they said about Canaan? It's a land that's flowing with, sounds sticky, as VeggieTales told us, right? It's a reference to this amazing land. It's this this land that's flowing with milk milk and honey. As Joshua and Caleb entered into that land with those spies, he saw they had these huge grapes and huge fruit, and, and, and they said this certainly is a good land. Nobody denied that it was an incredible land. 
This little phrase represents what I call here, not heaven, but the victorious Christian life. The, the abundant, fruitful Christian life. Canaan land is not heaven. We have sung many beautiful songs about heaven. Many of them are good. In our hymnals, there are songs that talk about Canaan land and refer to it as heaven. And I believe that as you study here, this is not representative of heaven. When you study the children of Israel and, and when they went into the land of Canaan, you'll find that there were battles there. You'll, you, when you and I get to heaven, we'll, stu we, we'll study war no more. There's no more war in heaven. There's no war in the new heaven and the new earth. Who's excited about that? Like, this is a good deal for us. We'll lay our war instruments down. Canaan here represents this victorious Christian life. There are battles in the Christian life, but those battles are won through faith. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So into rest represents this abundant, transformed Christian life. Out of Egypt represents salvation. The phrase in the wilderness occurs in the 17th verse. You see it, verse 17? But with whom he was grieved 40 years, was it not them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? The wilderness was between Egypt and Canaan. The children of Israel journeyed for 40 years in that wilderness. It, it's called the wilderness wandering. That phrase in the wilderness represents the life, I believe, of a defeated believer. It's a believer who's saved. They're out of Egypt, but they're living a defeated, miserable, wasted life. In my estimation, some of the most miserable people on this planet are people who are saved, but have never grown who are living a life devoid of all that God wants them to have. So those are the parameters, the three phrases that organize this passage of Scripture with for us. This passage of Scripture is saying that it's possible for someone to be saved, redeemed by the blood, yet now, have, now not have that victorious, overcoming Christian life that God wants for us to have. And, and some of us find ourselves in those two places. Sometimes we find ourselves in Canaan land, in the promised land, walking with God, doing what we ought to do. And sometimes we find ourselves wandering in the wilderness. A spiritual Christian is a Canaan Christian. A carnal Christian is a wilderness Christian. That's what he's talking about in these verses. He uses this Old Testament experience of the children of Israel being in the wilderness as a wandering, a caution to these Christians in his day and by the Holy Spirit to you and me today, that we not be content just to be saved and never grow and never mature and develop into becoming what God wants us to be. It is this overcoming, the victorious, the productive and fruitful Christian life that God wants us to have. So that's the framework. Now let's look at this story, okay? Let's look at the story. Look at uh, verse 7. First we see that the Jews rebelled. The Jews rebelled. He says, harden not your hearts. This is the diagnosis of the Holy Spirit that he made of the people of God who believed enough to make it out of Egypt, but not enough to go into Canaan. He says, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. Provocation means to provoke. The problem that the Israelites had is they provoked God. They, they had a, a problem in their hearts. They had wrong motivations, wrong attitudes, wrong intentions. Behavior always flows from the heart. The children of Israel had a problem. Specifically, the word here is scleruno, and it means to harden or to make stubborn. They were resistant to God. He said they were in a time of temptation or testing, and they tempted God. The idea is that they tried God. They resisted him because of the stubbornness of their hearts. The Bible says that our behavior always follows our heart. Jesus said it this way, for out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the fingers type. Out of the abundance of the heart, the feet go, the hands make. Whatever comes in here will come out here. What you do will show up because of who you are. How did the children of Israel come to have, an, have a, hard, a hardened heart? Verse 12 says they had an evil heart of unbelief. How did their heart grow hard? In unbelief. Verse 18, 
And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that, what? Believed not. Verse 19, you see it. So when they, so we see that they could not enter in because of, what? Unbelief. The first step towards a hard heart is to have an unbelieving heart. An unbelieving heart. God wants to be people of faith. The just shall live by faith. We're not just saved by faith. We're sanctified by faith. We're not just saved by faith. We grow by faith. We're not just saved by faith. We live by faith. Faith in who? Faith in God. Faith in God. The problem they had was an unbelieving heart. It's always a heart. God had miraculously delivered the children of Israel. Think about it. When they entered into that wilderness, God didn't mean for them to stay but just a few months. It was supposed to be just a passageway to get them into Canaan. God had delivered them out of the land of Egypt. He had delivered them from the death angel by the Passover lamb. When they came to the Red Sea, God had miraculously opened up the Red Sea. They walked through the sea on dry ground and God delivered them from Pharaoh and his armies. God gave them a glory cloud to guide them in the day. And at night he gave them a pillar of fire. God fed them with angels' food. What is it? Manna from heaven. God had done miracles galore. You would think that the children of Israel would have had a great faith in God. Yet, when you go back and read the Old Testament experience, when they got to the wilderness, the first time they had a problem, they started doubting God. Their hearts were filled with unbelief. They didn't have any water. So they started bellyaching and grumbling and complaining and blaming Moses. The Lord said, why do you tempt me? The point being, if God can deliver them through a Red Sea, surely God can provide them with some water. Did they realize God could control the water? Yes, they did. But it started off doubting the ability of God to meet their needs. They went from doubt in their hearts to grumbling in their hearts. And grumbling is basically a heart problem. It's unbelief. Then the grumbling hearts and grumbling in their hearts burst out into complaining out of the outside. They started outwardly complaining. They went from outwardly complaining to open re, openly rebelling. Just, they had just gotten into the wilderness and ha, had open re, rebellion. Their hearts became hard and they rebelled. And so what did God do? God responded. That's what we see in verse 10. Wherefore I was greed with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they will not enter into my rest. Do you remember what happened? They were grumbling. They were complaining. At one point, they sent spies into the land to see what Canaan land looked like. Twelve spies went in, and when they came back, they were united on the condition of the land, but not united to what would be done or what could be done. Joshua and Caleb said, said something like, the land is incredible. God's giving us this land. It's ours to take because God's on our side. We can believe God for this place. It's a promised land. He tells Joshua later on when Joshua takes over, hey, everywhere that the soles of your feet go, that's going to be yours. Who likes that real estate deal? That's what God wanted for them. But then the other 10 spies says, yeah, it's a great place, but there are giants in the land. <laughs> we can't go in there. We won't make it. They turn back to the wilderness. Why? Unbelief. They were guilty of unbelief. So for 40 years, they wandered. They whined and they wandered. In fact, God told them that there was going to be a generation of them that couldn't go in, even if that is what they desired. And verse 17 tells us exactly what happens when it says about them whose carcass fell in the wilderness. Every adult 20 years of age or older that had been part of the rebellion against God died in the wilderness. What an illustration. You get it with me? What an illustration. 
God had so expressly showed his mercy to them. Think of the plagues that, this, the, the, that he deployed to get them out of Egypt. Think of the sea he parted to get them away from, from Pharaoh. Think of the army he destroyed in their wake. Think of the glory cloud he was leading them by and the manna he was dropping into their plates. I, I, uh, I grew up in church in the last 40 years. And when I was in children's church, we had this thing called flannel graph. You guys remember flannel graph? Okay, some of you don't. And it's, it was basically a felt board on an easel, typically a senior lady or senior man teaching a bunch of little kids. And they had these little cutout pieces. Um, if your church had some money, uh, they were pre-colored. Um, if they were cheaper, you get the, the teacher had to color them. And then you put them on this felt board and told the story. And I remember, it always felt like every like year or two, we were in Exodus with the Israelites. And I remember as a kid thinking about, man, those, those Israelites were dumb. If I saw God part the Red Sea, it'd be easy for me to believe in God. I've never seen that, but it'd be easy for me to believe in God. If I had seen God beat beat Egypt with frogs. What a cool way to take over. Frogs and flies and locusts. Who thinks that's pretty funny? I'm going to beat them with, lo- with frogs. If God could do that, if, and if I saw God do that, it'd be easy for me to believe in God, right? And, and But yet they didn't believe. And, and here's what I want to say to us. The reason that this is in here, I want to warn us not to look at the children of Israel and go, oh yeah, that was dumb. I'd never do that. Who, who are we in the story? We're not Moses. <laughs> we're not Aaron. We're not always Joshua. Sometimes we're those grumbling and complaining Israelites. Are you with me? Jesus is in our history. He's not this thing that we know nothing about. He's not this thing that we're looking forward to in the sense of his first coming, right? There's a lot of those things that those people in the Old Testament heard prophesied about Jesus coming, and they, 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 had, they, were, were, they didn't quite understand all of it. I was in the young adults class today, and, and uh, we were going through John, and Damon was teaching, and he talked about how that how that some of the people, when they heard Jesus speak and preach, they're like, yeah, but isn't Jesus going to come from here and come from there? I mean, when Christ, when he comes, the Messiah, when he comes, can come from here, come from there. And they were confused. They were confused about exactly what that first coming would be like. Can I tell you that there's not a lot of confusion you need to have about Jesus' first coming. He prophesied when he would be born, where he would be born, all of these things, and we can see it as history. And yet sometimes... Even as a believer, you, how many of you guys know this is a word of God? How, how many of you know? How many of you know that if you follow this, God's going to bless your life? Do you always follow it? Who are we? We're the children wandering in the wilderness. Anybody here ever get scared to do the right thing, even though you know it's right to do? You know what that's called? An evil heart of unbelief. Are you with me? And so here's the warning. The warning is, if we think that, we're, that they were unreasonable and stubborn, we need to understand that sometimes we're that way. In these last days, God has spoken unto us by his Son. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not prophecy to us. It's history. We have thousands of years of Jesus' resume of transformation to check on. We have all kinds of evidence that the Bible is the word of God, yet at times we get scared of people and problems. We fight, what do we fight? Unbelief. We sin out of the wrong ideas and emotions that we are believing and it's keeping us from experiencing that abundant and rich spiritual inheritance that we have already been given, that we have already been given. And so... The simple message today, you have a familiar illustration number two, you have a practical application. 
Here it is. Three things. Be cautious. Be cautious. Look at what he says. Take heed, brethren. This is the second kind of section of the warnings that we find in Hebrews. This is similar to chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, Therefore we ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And he says in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? He's warning them. Here he's saying, take heed. Here's another warning. Brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. The word departing here is the word from which we get our word apostasy. Some have read this to mean that it's possible for saved people to apostatize and be lost again. In most of the passages in the Bible where this word for apostasy is used, it's referred to, it refers to those who have hourly professed faith in the Lord and at some point in time denounce their faith in the Lord and go into open rebellion and doctrinal error and, and denial of the fundamentals of the faith. In fact, the Bible says that before the Lord Jesus Christ comes in the rapture, there will be a falling away, an apostasy. People who were never genuinely saved, they just profess to be saved. But that's not the use of the word here. The word departing here really means just to step away from. He's not talking about apostatizing in the sense that you lose your salvation. He's talking about that you step away from the full blessing that God has for you as a born-again child of God. What he's saying is don't step away, don't step back, step forward. Go on. Don't make the, don't make the, the mistakes that the disciples did. When you have the opportunity, and folks, we have the opportunity, when you have the opportunity to grow into all that God wants us to be, don't shy away because unbelief. Believe it. Move into it. Grow. Grow. God wants to transform your life. Believe him for it. We see this all the time. People who start off and make a profession of faith and then drop out. Sometimes I wonder if many of these people are even saved. I think that some of these people who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and fall by the wayside, though, have never been truly saved. But I do know that there are some who have a real salvation experience, but when the problems and the difficulties and the trials of life come along, sometimes they, they veer, they wander. They're not back in Egypt, but they're not in Canaan. They're wandering in the wilderness of defeat. You know people like that. I know people like that. Don't be like that. Be cautious. Of course, this can also apply to people who don't believe. Unbelief is a dangerous thing. Hardness of heart will lead to a lack of repentance, which is the only hope you have. Turn to Jesus and be saved. So be cautious. Letter B, be concerned. Be concerned. Look at verse 13. He says, instead of unbelief, instead of not departing, he says to do what? But it, be concerned. Of, exhort one another how often? Daily. But exhort one another daily. How often? Daily. Who needs encouragement daily? You get tempted daily. You get tempted not to believe daily. You need encouragement daily. While it's called today, lest any, be, any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What is this encouragement and relationship in these verses? It's a relationship to the evil heart of unbelief and sin. I wonder what might have happened to the children of Israel if they, instead of grumbling and complaining and bellyaching, they encouraged one another. What if they had said to one another, how can we do, hey, we can do this, we can trust God. God has led us this far. He's not going to let us down. Come on, let's keep going. The Bible tells us to provoke one another to love and good works. He says here, exhort one another daily. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The word deceitful here means the trickery of sin. Do you know why many people fail to go on to all that God has for them? Because they fall for the mask that sin puts on. They fall for the trickery of sin. Sin will trick you into thinking that the deepest needs of your heart can be met by something or someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is tricky. I want to encourage our leaders today, okay? If you're a Sunday school leader, you're a deacon, you're a trustee, you're a D group leader, you're a care group leader, I want you to be encouragers of the people that God's entrusted to your care. I can't do 
for this whole church what needs to be done in, her, in terms of helping to do what this verse says to do. Are you with me? Our staff cannot do all that it takes to help encourage. You know what the Bible says? It's not just some holy class of people. We're not holy. I'm, listen, if you haven't got this, I'm, I was about to say I'm normal. I'm not quite normal. I'm just a dude. I'm just a person. I can't do ever. I am not your sole answer to what you need. Jesus is your answer. Jesus is your answer. And I'm not saying it because I think everybody thinks that. I'm just saying, I'm going to let you down. Sometimes I'm tempted to go back to the wilderness. Sometimes I don't believe. Not that Jesus is God. I'm saying in the moment of temptation, are you with me? Are you there? I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. So are you. But we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And we have the church, this assembly. The reason you need to show up when we show up is because we need to provoke one another to love and to good works. I need it every day, and so do you. Are you with me? You need it. Church family, when you see a Christian friend slacking a little bit, I'm not saying let's be legalistic. I'm saying encourage, help. Come on, we can do that. Let's get everything in store that God has in store for us. You know how the temptation to sin works? Sin and Satan lie to us. Sometimes we lie to ourselves. We're tempted to believe thoughts like, oh man, it's no big deal. We're tempted to believe like, oh, Jesus has already forgiven it. I, this won't bother me. This won't affect me. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. You try it and immediately. The, so, sometimes they, the temptation says, hey, you, don't have to, you don't have to do it again. Just go ahead and try it. And you try it and immediately the devil says, now you've done it. It's all over for you. There's no hope for you. Don't be tricked by sin or the devil. Letter C, be confident. Look at verse 14. Don't get lost in the weeds here with me. He says in verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. You know what he means? If you've partaken in Christ, the evidence of the fact that you have Christ in you is that you will, you will persevere to the end. We don't do it so that we are in Christ. We do it because we are in Christ. Partaker here means a joint owner in the business. The word's used five times in Hebrews. It's used one other time in the New Testament in Luke 5, 7, when it talks about someone being fishing partners. What, what's, what he's saying is, let's go on. We're joint owners with Jesus Christ in the great enterprise of Christianity, which is the great inter enterprise of bringing people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you become a wilderness Christian instead of a Canaan Christian, then you cannot realize your participation in the great enterprise of redemption, which God is carrying on in this world. He says in verse 14, we're made partakers in Christ if we hold beginning of our confidence steadfast in the end. That word confidence is the word title deed. That is, in Christ, we have a title deed of salvation. He's saying to get everything that the title, give, title deed gives to you. Go on, be a full-blown, mature, reproducing Christian. We must believe God for all that he promised, not only for our salvation, but for our sanctification. That's the point. We're saved by faith. We're sanctified by faith. And so that leads me to this third part. And that's a section number three, an urgent summary. An urgent summary. We have a familiar illustration. We have a practical application. Be, be careful. Be confident. Be encouraging. Section number three, an urgent summary. Here it is. Verse 15, while it is said, today, 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 not tomorrow, not yesterday, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation. 
we see two things in these last few verses. Number one, we see urgency. The writer repeats the scripture he's already quoted from Psalm 95, saying the word today. You see that word in verse 7? Today. You see it in verse 15? Today. You see it in verse 13? Today. <laughs> the Bible uses this word today to give us a message to the, to the saved. Where you have come from and how you have grown in the past is important, of course. But where are you at today? What is your heart with Jesus like today? Are you with me? Where are you at? There's an urgency. Do you know when it's time for you to make up your mind that you're going to go on and be everything God wants you to be? And what I mean by that is that you're going to allow Jesus to do that in you. That you're going to partner with him. How? By faith. By faith. He's the one that does it. We just submit to what he's doing. When do you need to do that? I'll do it tomorrow. Next week, you know what? You may not have the opportunity next week. You may not have the opportunity tomorrow. What is it? It's today. Today. And that leads us to this second thing. He's urgent about this summary of what he's been saying. You have an urgency, you have a summary. What does it say? While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. For some, when they had heard, they did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but because they believe not, see we that they could not enter in. So we see that they could not enter in because of what? Unbelief. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. This is the summary statement of which he is so concerned. It must be of utmost concern to us as well. Where are you at in terms of your heart towards God? Where, what are you believing in right now about your sin and your Savior? Today is the high water mark of your walking with the Lord sometime in the past, or is it today? Was there a time in your relationship with God, in your fellowship with God, in your love for the Lord, in your passion for his mission and ministry, was there a time in your past that was greater than it is now? Has your love for the Lord and passion for the things of the Lord waned? You know what he would tell us? Maybe that identifies some kind of heart of unbelief. And maybe what the Spirit is trying to say to you through this text today is, today, today, let's do the things, the works in keeping with repentance. Let's adorn the transformation that Jesus wants to do in our lives well. What will keep us out of the promised land of the victorious Christian life that is marked by being transformed and helping others in that process of being all that, believing God for all that he wants to do? What is it that's gonna keep us from this transformation? It's a heart of unbelief. Jesus is incredible at transformation. He has come to dwell us Dwell in us as his house. He is in us if we are saved. And if we are saved, he will continue to work on us to the end. That is his part in the transformation process. What is our part? Our part is to believe. Our part is faith. Our part is like I talked about last week. Jesus said, abide. Abide in me. Remain in me. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You need to be in God's Word every day. And not to read it to check it off the list. You need to read it to understand it, and to obey it, 
and to share it and to know it and to love it and to share it with others. That's the secret. Believe. If it's not getting in your head, it won't get to your heart. You need more than what you can get in the service times at this church. You need that too. But you need God's word every day. And we need to help each other do that. We need to encourage one another to do that. Because there is such a thing as the deceitfulness of sin. There is such a thing as wilderness wandering. What will keep us out of the promised land of victorious Christian life that's marked by being transformed and helping others in that process of believing God for all that he wants to do? It is this heart of unbelief. It's a lack of faith and trust in God. It's thinking that we can do it on our own. It's thinking we can do life on our own. It's thinking that our sin is no big deal. It's thinking that you can live in the Christian life without spending time with God, with God's people, with seeking direction. So I say, with the writer of Hebrews, to myself first and to us today, if you regard sin in your heart, repent. Today, if you'll hear his verse, his, his voice, harden not your heart. Today, if you're not saved, repent and believe in Jesus. Today, if you're trying to do all of this Christian life on your own, repent. Repent and believe in Jesus, not just for your salvation, but for transformation and for ministry. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Today is the day. Today. It's time for us to believe today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?